0: Hey, if you guys find your way to your seats, um, China, thank you for reading our text this morning, Genesis chapter 23. If you are in need of a copy of God's Word, um, you can uh, pick one up, a hard copy back there on our information table that is right next to our Tide and Offering box. Um, feel free to, to hit an app, right? Um, turn on or to Genesis chapter 23. That is where we are going to be. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. As we consider from this... Wonderful chapter of this wonderful book, The Preservation of Hope in Spite of Death. I said in the beginning that this morning is um, it's somewhat of a challenging passage because we're talking about um, a subject um, from God's Word that makes many of us... Um, like shrink away a bit, if we're really honest, and that is the subject of death. And so, um, man, you're here on the right morning, right? How do we as Christians think about death? And how do we live life in light of um, this eternal perspective that we possess in light of what God's Word has to say? Um, I want to begin with a, a question. I want us to all connect for just a moment. It's a question that I think that we all can relate with. And the question is this, have, have you ever um, felt as though you were out of place? Have you ever felt out of place? I have, personally, right? I remember um, being a, uh, a, an incoming freshman in 2004 to this prestigious university and feeling very much out of place. I was coming in as a, a recent high school graduate, prepared to begin my undergraduate work, in a totally new city, around a totally new group of people. I remember uh, being allowed to move in a few days earlier than many of the other students uh, were. And my thought was, this is great. Right, this is going to be super helpful. Additional, additional time to, to acclimate right to a, to a new place and a, a new normal Some time to transition can be nothing but healthy. And it was. At the same time, however, in many ways, it proved to be quite difficult. I remember feeling feeling really lonely. I remember feeling really awkward. I could not escape this, this feeling from my dorm room to the halls of my building, walking on campus to navigating... Our community, as best as I could, everything felt strange. Can you relate with this? Of course you can. And as I sought to navigate in this new, very strange normal, one reoccurring thought informed every experience. And that thought was this. That this is not home. This is not home. This is very very different than my home. Now, last week we worked through, arguably, one of the greatest displays of faith recorded in Scripture. Let me take us back for just a moment. A a father displaying unwavering obedience to a God who has demonstrated unprecedented faithfulness. Moses does a masterful job under the inspiration of the Spirit in connecting his audience with a doctrine's introduction and its immediate application. What are we talking about? Well, we saw last week the introduction of this idea, the hope of the resurrection and grace of substitution. And I remind us of our time together last week, because this week we see the passing of a faithful wife. And an event that reminds the characters in this story, as well as you and I, that this place, this world, is not our home. Two observations that I want us to lean into uh, from Genesis chapter 23 this morning. Throwing you guys off, right? Only two. Number one, uh, a gospel-informed perspective of life and death. A gospel-informed perspective of life and death. We're going we're to try to lean into this this morning. Okay? We're going to spend a lot of time here in the beginning unpacking the, the death of Sarah. We're going we're to revisit her character and even how the New Testament informs the way that we think about her. All of this serving to set the stage for you and I as to how we as God's people deal with death how we respond to death and how we live in light of death a gospel informed perspective of life and death what do we think about life and what do we think about death and how do we respond in light to the life to the inevitability of death we're going to look at this from the first 9 verses a gospel informed perspective of life and death number 2 a gospel informed expectation of the future a gospel-informed expectation for the future. The gospel-informed perspective of life and death, verses 1-9, through 9, and then verses 10-20, through 20, a gospel-informed expectation of the future. All coming together to, to make for us this idea that I want us to seek a, a deeper and greater understanding of from this text as we discuss it over the course of the next 35 or 40 minutes. And that is this, that the glory of Christ... And the hope of the resurrection serves to shape the way that God's people process life and death as we look ahead to the world to come. Let me say that again for all the note takers. Right? The, the glory of Christ and the hope of the resurrection serving to shape the way that God's people process life and death. As we look ahead to the world to come. This leads us to the transformational intent of Genesis chapter 23. You see, we are of the conviction that as we lean into God's word and his spirit right, shapes and, and breaks our hearts in light of what we see, that there is a transformation that is so desired, that every text has a transformational intent. That we are not to uh, come and attend here this morning, to sit in these seats and to to hear from God's word and walk out of here the same way that we came in. That's just not the way that it works. Now it's not only the case here, but it's also the case anytime we lean into and engage God in his word. That there is a, a transformational intent that he desires to mold and to shape and break the hearts of his people, conforming us into the image of his son. This text is no different. It does the same thing. From Genesis chapter 23, the call is to, to live and grieve in light of the gospel. And all that it says about this time and the time to come. Are We live and we grieve in light of the gospel. Are we, we live and grieve in light of the gospel. And all that it has to say about this life and the life to come. Now we're making a number of assertions here, aren't we? And that is that this life is not it, That there is something beyond this place of which we say that Christ Jesus captures us and brings us into eternal fellowship with himself, with our Heavenly Father, a good Father. That this is option number one, that the second is eternal separation from God. Right? This world is not it, regardless of, of what you might believe, regardless of, of how your framework might be pieced together. This world is not all that there is, that there is something beyond. My encouragement to you this morning, as is each week, is to look to and enjoy Christ, to rest in Him, an eager anticipation of what is to come. We culminate our time together each week by coming to the table and responding in light of this in light of this truth. We've got to get to the text though. Um, here we go. Uh, number one. Let's start here. Verses 1 through 9. A gospel-informed perspective of life and death. A gospel-informed perspective of life and death from the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 23. Look with me at verse 1. Again, remember I said open up to or turn on. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 23. <laughs> Verse 1, Moses writes, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. As we survey the landscape of human history, we observe both an obsession with, as well as a distancing from, the consideration of death. In our Western culture, I think we tend to trend away from death. Right? It's not really something that many people like to think about. It's not something that we really enjoy talking about, or, or in many instances, even processing through. The irony, of course, is found in death's inevitability, right? And we may not like to talk about it, we may not like to think about it, we may not like to process through it, but the reality is that it is a, 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 a pivotal part of the human experience, so even if we don't like to, to talk about death, the reality is that if we live long enough, we will encounter it. That's what we're saying. right? That, that those who are closest to you will pass away. And as a result, you will be left to process. In addition, when we pass, we leave others to process. And so what are we saying? We're saying this, the death is a major part of life. We will mourn, and we will leave others in mourning. And so, how does Genesis chapter 23 shape the way that Christians practice this inevitable part of the human existence, of our experience? The way that we practice life moving towards death, as well as the way that we mourn loss. Let's be clear, this passage has much to say say about how we, as God's people, process through loss. But it also has much to say about how we live. Right? How how we live, not only how we mourn, but how we go about living in light of the inevitability of death. In verses 1 and 2, we see Moses recording for his readers the loss of a faithful wife. I want us to lean in and I want us to consider some things about Sarah. As it will serve to shape our understanding of Abraham's response. Sarah was a a loving mother. who, Who set an example that Christian women are to strive for. Now this is not only my opinion, although it is most certainly my opinion. But it's also the counsel of Peter as he writes encouraging scattered Christians throughout the Roman provinces. From 1 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what he has to say. He says, not let your adornment be merely outward. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah... Obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror we 'll say some things about the life of of, of Sarah. It is certainly an, an admirable one. it is certainly one that is held out. We observed that from one Peter chapter three. We can also say this in light of what we have observed over the course of our months together walking through the life of Abraham and his bride. Sarah's life was not easy. It wasn't easy. But it was certainly significant. Keep in mind that Sarah spent much of her life unable to bear children. Unable to have children. She was misidentified on multiple occasions by her own husband. She was made to be in the possession of foreign kings. And as we saw from Genesis chapter 22 last week, she was a spectator to her own son's march out of camp on his way to, presumably, be sacrificed. Yes, Sarah is a great illustration of what a woman of faith and humility looks like. But a great illustration of what a a woman of faith and humility looks like as she is carried along by God's power, possessing attributes that support the transformative work of grace and the gospel in the lives of people. She was rich in beauty and bold. Placing her hope in God, honoring her husband's leadership, and as a result, increasing his wealth as a good wife is most definitely a treasure to her husband. As we talk about the the practice of life, certainly Sarah serves as a source of great encouragement. A great encouragement for emulation for all women desiring to serve and glorify God. Surely the loss of such a wife would devastate any husband. And in response to her death, we observe Abraham's response in verse 2. What does Moses write for us? Well, he says this, that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah. And to weep for her. An act that only serves to affirm her value to him. This man of of faith grieves the loss of his bride. And he should, given everything that has been said about her already. I want you to notice something about the way that Abraham's response is recorded for us here. He does not shrink back from grief. And there's no indication that his response is viewed as inappropriate in any way. Now why is that noteworthy? Why do we draw that out? Is that important? I think that it is. Again, this is not common practice. In our day, I think especially... In fact, when we observe this type of response, it oftentimes stands out even from a from a Christian perspective to observe someone mourning well typically stands stands off of the page or when we when we witness that, we make note of it. I remember reading a, a book I believe. Um, I believe by Jared Wilson, interestingly enough, since his name came up in conversation this morning a number of years ago, in which he talked about this this reality, that Christians typically do not party well and we do not mourn well. We don't grieve well and we don't celebrate well. We just we can't get it right. I don't know that he necessarily said that just about Christians, but I think that he did draw that out as a part of the Christian experience. We tend to struggle in these areas, which is is really, really interesting. Because this is such an area for struggle, I think that it would be most helpful to consider how Abraham's response shapes the way that God's people ought to grieve loss. Two things that I think that we can observe from verse 2. Number one, God's people grieve publicly. God's people grieve publicly. Let's think about how all of this this lays itself out. I mean, after all, Christian worship is indeed a public act. Is it not? I mean, look around. This is evidence of that. We publicly confess our need for Christ and our reliance on God for grace and for strength. Now that doesn't mean that we don't practice worship privately. That's a major point of of practice for the Christian. However, if a public element is lacking, there is a real possibility that there is a private disconnect as well. The value of, of public grief... In response to or in light of our realization of our need for God. We come together as we came into this place this morning and we we pray. We confess our need. We confess our weakness and our desire for God to do something. We confess that in and of ourselves we are incapable. That it requires Him to do something. Right? There's this this public display of vulnerability that we as God's people enter into each week. Grief, in similar fashion, does the same way, does the same thing. Public suppression can easily be a sign of of private suppression. And private, private suppression is certainly undesirable. And so, what are we saying? We're saying this, that that public grief is a part of the Christian life. Genesis chapter 23 would support this. The book of Job would support this. In addition to all of that, we are also a missional people. Public grief serves to point others toward God when we practice it rightly. Whereas with its absence, we serve to remove that opportunity. We are a missional people, and therefore we are an, an open people. We are a transparent people. We are comfortable grieving publicly loss and heartache, brokenness. We observe that from Genesis chapter 23 in Moses' response to the loss of his bride. Not only do God's people grieve publicly, as we observe here, but God's people grieve in community. God's people grieve in community. So element one, we as God's people grieve publicly. We are cool entering into that. Why? Well, because we're not to be prideful, right? We embrace a posture of humility, right? We walk into difficulty, and we're okay with that being out there. Why? Because we have no, like, rep to protect, right? Building up our own, our own strength. Remember, we, we lean into the work of Christ, in addition, God's people grieve in community. This is something that is, has been real for like our family over the course of the past year. As perhaps many of you know, Courtney and I, a year ago today, sovereignly enough, experienced grief. Right, As, as very early on in, in Courtney's pregnancy, she miscarried. Now the temptation, especially in our case, was to just walk through this without making anything of it, right, But not not being public about this, primarily because it was hard and we could. It was very early and and Corey wasn't really showing, we hadn't really told anyone, it was a difficult conversation and for whatever reason, even in this case, there was some semblance of shame. I felt it. Yet in it, and through it, it didn't take long for us to sit down and to have this following conversation. Right? Not if we would tell, but when we would tell. When Not if we would talk about this with other people, but when we would talk about this with other people. And it would require vulnerability, wouldn't it? It would require vulnerability that resulted in some discomfort. However, that did not change the fact that bringing this grief to light would result in the opportunity to be gospeled by other people. Through our transparency as we sought to point toward a hope that transcends death. Do you get that? Do we understand what we're talking about here? Being being gospeled by God's people. Right, as, they, as they come around and love you and, and support you and speak truth to you that you know, but that you are in seasons like that in need of being reminded of. From Genesis chapter 23, the response of Abraham and our own personal experience, we can say this, that, that death ought to result in grief. It ought to. Let's not make it something that it's it's not. This is informed by what we see here in Genesis chapter 23. It ought to produce sadness. And to act as though it it doesn't or that it shouldn't is to totally disassociate oneself from a right response to this season of separation that follows. And those words are intentional. Because, Because death is... A separation, but it is a, a seasonal separation. right? A season that, that comes to an end as Christ Jesus brings His kingdom in full. Right? Judging His enemies and elevating His people to eternal fellowship with one another and with Him. This is a hope that, that God's people live in eager anticipation of. We can look to His Word, and we can see home. Death serves to, to highlight this reality that we live in a broken world, that we are not home. And yet as we, as we survey the landscape of God's Word, we see this, this picture of what home looks like. A new heaven and a a new earth where righteousness dwells, where the gates of the city stay open because there is no opportunity for evil's entrance. I believe on some level (laughs) that Abraham grasps this by possessing faith in the world to come as the head of the serpent is crushed. Genesis chapter 23 gives every indication that Abraham is applying these truths to his life. The question that we must answer is Are we? Let's take a moment and let's, let's map this out. Question How do a people of faith respond to death? I'm not sure where you are this morning, but Abraham nails it. Verse 2, he mourns his wife. He weeps for her again. Remember what we've already said about Sarah. She modeled a desirable heart and a Hebrews 11, God-glorifying posture. One that we would do well to emulate. Her loss, let us be not confused, is significant. And yet, Abraham is not undone. Look with me at verse 3. Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He grieves without being consumed by grief. Do you see the picture here? He grieves and yet he is not consumed by grief. A sojourner and a foreigner. Verse 4. The dead shall be removed from his sight. But again, knowing this is not the end informs Abraham's response. We see here that what we believe about God means more than what we feel. Do you see this? It allows us to to enter into human emotion and to process it in a healthy, God-glorifying way. What we believe about God means more than what we perceive and more than what we desire in terms of practice. Last week, we saw an expression of Abraham's understanding of the resurrection. Do you remember this? You guys stay here, Genesis chapter 22, with the donkey. My son and I are going up the mountain and we will return. We talked last week about how this informs our understanding of Abraham's comprehension of the power of God to raise the dead. You remember this? Last week, from Genesis chapter chapter 22, an expression of Abraham's understanding of the resurrection. This week, we see its practicality, right? How what you learn in the shop right, quickly transitions outside, doesn't it? Like what we learn in the, in the classroom, transitions outside. Right? What we learn in the books, transitions outside. We see what a right practice of, of, a, of a right theological embrace results in. Look at me at verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of, Of God among us, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, verse 8. Remember, he's a sojourner, he's a foreigner here. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should... Bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of uh, Malpecah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your, uh, in your presence as property for a burying place. What do we observe from these first nine verses? Well, that there is indeed a time to grieve. We see what it looks like to to grieve in a healthy way, in a God-glorifying way. There is a time to grieve, and there is a time to rise up again. One's approach to to life and, and death is shaped by what he or she believes about God. Let me say that one more time. One's one's approach to to life and everything that it entails is shaped by what he or she believes about God. Why do we we lean into and and practice a similar liturgy every week? Why do we look to the screens and and recite together corporately, individually, the Apostles' Creed? Why? Well, because we need it. We need to to be reminded of who God is. We need to be reminded of what He has done. We need to be reminded of what He is doing. What we are learning here in the classroom will quickly become applicable as we work our way into the shop. Not only do we see a gospel-informed perspective of life and death, but we see a gospel-informed expectation of the future in verses 10 through 20. Look there with me. Here we see Abraham... Provided an avenue to begin to take possession of the land that God had promised him. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12. As he purchases a plot for Sarah. We see here that death is indeed no obstacle to the work of God. But instead that he uses death to work toward the good of his people. In fact, as we consider the place of Genesis 23 and this story and the possession of the promised land, it is worth taking note that that God's people are, are always pointed towards something more. God's people are always pointed towards something more. filled A place filled with people purchased by the death of Jesus. Look at me at verse 10. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. This is important. And I give you the purchased. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bear your debt. Like, this is, not a, this is not a big deal, is what Ephron is saying. Like, what is this? Like, here, let me give it to you. You bury your, your dead there. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Let's get this thing right, <laughs> right? I think sure, this is legit. So the field of Ephron, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham. It was made over to to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave, the field, east of Mamre, that is Hebron. And the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it were made up to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Four hundred shekels of silver. An incredibly high price if we consider a, 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 a seasonal economy here. One that makes clear to those prepared to enter in and take possession of that land that obedience to God is costly. We remember, again, that we are not the first recipients of this, this account. Right, but it is written to, to God's people, right? oppressed, and enslaved, set free, liberated, making laps in the wilderness, now prepared to take possession of the land that God had Indeed, promise them. What are they being reminded as they go in? Well, they're being reminded that obedience to God is costly. Right? That obedience to God is costly. From Genesis chapter 23, Abraham looks ahead in faith. From Genesis chapter 23, Abraham looks ahead in faith toward... The promised possession of this land. And while he would not live to see God's people take full possession of it, he gets a glimpse of it here. From Moses, God's people are reminded that he is doing something bigger than themselves. Right there, they're being reminded that, that God is doing something bigger than them. Ultimately, this story is bigger than the field. Ultimately, this story is, is bigger than a burial cave, at least this burial cave. A fuller picture of, of what God is doing, is seeing through, not the site of Sarah's burial or, or Abraham who would join her, but Christ's. Not an occupied tomb, but an empty tomb. Not the feeling of, of, of this country or or this country, but a greater country. But a greater country that is that is occupied by those purchased by the blood of Christ. Here in Genesis chapter twenty three, we are pointed toward a greater. Where we're pointed toward something that is bigger, we're, we're pointing toward something that is that is greater. The gospel paints this, this beautiful picture for us of Jesus entering a fragile and feigning world, saving sinners for the incorruptible and unfailing eternal kingdom of God. So let's remember a few things. All right, let's remember the glory of Christ. Let's remember the hope of the resurrection and how it serves to shape the way that God's people process life and death as we look ahead to the world to come. Let us remember that this world is not our home. And God's desire for his people is to consult the gospel for all things in life and in death. Did you get that? That God's desire is for God's people to consult his word and the hope of the gospel as it pertains to all things in life and in death. Wow. That's massive, isn't it? That that changes some things, doesn't it? We We look to Christ. We look to our future inheritance as one day we are rescued from this world. Called into the eternal kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus, who gave his life as a sacrifice for many. We look ahead to Jesus, the reality of eternity, and we live in light of it now. It doesn't get more practical than that. Do we realize that? Like, it really gets no more practical than that. As we experience life and and all that comes along with it, right, birth and, and loss... Right? Disappointments and great joys in all things. We process through the lens of the gospel. We process through the lens of this bigger story that is being told. This bigger story that is being told. That begins with this perfect and beautiful creation that goes horribly, horribly wrong as humanity rebels. We are confronted with our inability again and again and again. Upward trends and downward spirals. The law confronts us with our inability to work our way back into right fellowship with a righteous and holy God. And yet in Christ we see hope. We see see hope for, for this life and the life to come. And as a result in all things and through all things we consider the gospel... Do you hear me? Right, we, we look to Christ. We rest in what He is doing among us. What He is doing in this world. All the while, all the while, very familiar with the following concept. That this is not our home. We say along with Abraham that we are sojourners. That we are pilgrims. Right, when we see our lives this way, it Fosters humility. Right? It, it, it fosters, it serves as a peach tree dish, which just gives way to this, this flourishing life of worship. Do you see how that works? Why? Well, because we are brought into this continued realization that we are in constant need for the provision of God. That we come to the table and we say, We possess nothing, it is all yours. Right? Our lives belong to you, and we live. In light of this great reality. Let us be real. Let us be honest. This is a struggle. It requires honesty and transparency from God's people. So that we might, as we mentioned earlier, in grief and in the things of this world, be gospeled. This morning, let's, let's meditate on this question. Let's meditate on this question as we transition to the table, as we come to the table to take of the bread and the cup. Reminded of the price of our purchase and the day in which we will feast with our King in the new heaven and the new earth. A day absent of death. What is it that informs our lives? Or what is it that informs life? What is it that informs life? What is it that informs death and every circumstance in between? What is it that informs life? What is it that informs death? And what is it that, that informs every circumstance in between? That's the question that we ask as we, as we prepare to transition to the table. And as we do so, we, we also... Look to and and rest on the eternal hope of the resurrection and and the work of Christ. In fact, in Christ, we find the answer to the question What is it that informs life, death, and every circumstance in between? Let us corporately and individually, as we transition to the table this morning, say this May it be Christ. What is it that informs life? May it be Christ. What is it that informs death? May it be Christ. What is it that informs everything in between? May it be Christ. As a result, we as God's people grow in, in a comfortability. Right? We're, we're, we're comfortable to grieve. Right? We we lean into it, confident that it is a, a seasonal separation. Right, confident that the gospel says that what we observe in this life—that oftentimes produces the great the greatest amount of sadness that you and I are capable of comprehending—is to ultimately one day be undone. Okay, that which is that which is sure, right? That which is certain. That which is a part of the human experience is to one day be undone as as dead people. Right? spiritually dead and separated, have been by grace brought to life only to move forward in obedience to the word of God and the power of God toward certain death, confident that there is a future resurrection. That's crazy, isn't it? Let us as we transition to the table consider the ways that this informs everything. For us. Let's be honest with our with our struggles. Let's be honest with our with our shortcomings. Let's be honest about our sin. Right, let's, let's turn from it and let's corporately look to Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I want us to pray, and then I want to say, I want to say a few things. So let's let's pray, um, and then before we transition to the table, I want us to have a, a, a little, a bit of a conversation about how we, as a church, respond each week to God's words.